Hey, how's it going, my friend? Can you can you hear me okay? Because I cannot hear you. Let's have a let's have a look. Let's get you unmuted, shall we? What is your microphone? What kind of microphone are you using? What kind of? Hey, can you uh, see check, the chat? Check, 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 check. Yeah, you oh, got me now. There we go. There, there we go. We have. Just Brilliant. had to just had to get the settings set for you. Um, <laughs> how are you? Good to see you. I noticed behind you is a book called "Sit Downs with Gangsters." Um, yes. I did a lot of those. So <laughs> I was the chief of the organized crime unit as a prosecutor. So uh, oh, we can talk wow. about real sit downs with real gangsters if you want. What state was that? Oh, was it federal? New York. Yeah, I was a fed in New York and Manhattan. Uh, so New York City mafia. Well, did, yep. did you come up? There's two American gangsters in that book. One's Michael Francis and the other is John Elite. Oh, well, Mike, Michael Francis is somebody I know of. I don't think I've ever met him, but I've heard him on a million podcasts. John A. Light uh, was a witness in a case. I did. We did the case against John Gotti Jr. So I spent a lot, many, many, many hours with John A. Light. Yeah, know him well. Oh, well, that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah he came yeah. out to the UK and we did we did a, an event with him here. He's also, all these gangsters have turned into podcasters now. It's like a whole underground uh, universe <laughs> of gangsters turned cooperators turned podcasters. God bless them. <laughs> well, at least they're on the straight and narrow. So what made you want to write this book? So it's actually my second book. Uh, my first book was it, it is called Hatchet Man, How Bill Barr Broke the Prosecutor's Code and Corrupted the Justice Department. It was about our Attorney General, Bill Barr, who was Donald Trump's almost last Attorney General. Um, and uh, I had written that book for my publisher, HarperCollins, and we were all thrilled with it. It did great. And then they said to me, within weeks of it publishing, what do you want to write next? And I said, I don't, I don't really have any ideas. And they said, well, what's okay, what question do you get most, asked most of you at CNN or just through your writing? I said, well, that's easy. Just how the hell does he get away with it? And the he can vary. Uh, most often it's Donald Trump, but also the other folks you mentioned and many others who were lesser known or unknown. And so I said, they said, that's perfect. So that became the book. And what I do in the book is sort of combine my own experience as a prosecutor, which we can talk about. I tell plenty of war stories of things we went through and things I learned as a prosecutor. Most of the stories end up with me screwing something up or getting yelled at by a judge or messing something up, but that's how you learn. Um, along with current events, along with some original reporting, I got some behind the scenes reporting on how some big decisions were made at DOJ about whether to indict Trump in the early days before they ever ended up actually doing it, why they passed on charging Donald Trump on the hush money case, which then right around the time my book came out, the state prosecutor across the street actually charged it. So it became even more sort of newsy and relevant at that point. Well, going back to Bill Barr then, because I've written a few books that feature Jeffrey Epstein. <laughs> and um, yep. he's an integral part of the story. Yeah. Whereby it was Donald Barr. Um, <laughs> there was the conflict of interest with Attorney General Bill Barr in the context. Um, because Donald Barr allegedly hired Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher, served as his mentor, and wrote a novel about men raping teenage girls. Yeah, so you're, uh, this is Bill Barr's father. I actually, I don't know all of that's true, but I do know that, I'll take your word for it, but I do know that Bill Barr's father did employ Jeffrey Epstein as a teacher, right? At a private school or something like that? Yep. Yeah, and, and Bill Barr, you know, the Epstein prosecution, the federal Epstein prosecution happened while Barr was there. 
Um, I, I don't buy into conspiracy theories that Barr had him murdered or anything like that. But I will say Bill Barr really failed to take any responsibility for losing Jeffrey. I mean, you can't lose Jeffrey Epstein when he's in prison right there. He's your number one high priority individual. And he got, you know, he died within a week or so of being there. And the fact that that that, that happened is is still not fully explained to me how BOP Bureau of Prisons, which is part of the Justice Department, could have allowed that to happen. There's a lot of unanswered questions. So how did Epstein get a pass on his first case? Yeah, so they basically had him dead to rights in Florida, state prosecutors, federal prosecutors in Florida. Um, it actually started with the local cops. They started getting complaints. They went and they developed a pretty good case. It lands on the desk of the U.S. attorney for Florida, a guy named Alexander Acosta. And if you recognize that name, it's because years later he becomes Trump's treasury secretary. Not, I'm sorry, not treasury. Uh, I think it's, I want to say labor secretary, one of his cabinet members. Um, and that's what thrust this back into the spotlight. But Epstein, they had victims willing to testify. They had him just cooked. And he goes and he hires this mega, I'm not going to say elite, because I think some of these lawyers are actually not very good, but famous big money lawyers, Alan Dershowitz, Kenneth Starr, who's since passed away, um, former prosecutors from that office, just this, what, what you might, what one might colloquially, colloquially, I can't say that word, colloquially call a dream team, although again, I quarrel with how good they actually were, but big, famous, intimidating attorneys. And long story short, the U.S. attorney, Acosta at the time, completely gives the gives the case away, lets Epstein plead to a state-level, uh, low-level crime of prostitution, even though they had him sexually abusing underage girls. He gets a 13-month sentence, but he's allowed to serve weekdays at his lawyer's office um, on quote-unquote work release from like, you know, nine to five. So he barely even serves any time. He gets a complete pass really because, you know, I tried to sort of go through the research and piece together. I was thinking, is there some grand conspiracy? But I think the ultimate answer is one of the prosecutors, lower ranking prosecutors in the office who was trying to get it charged properly later said, I just think he didn't have the spine. I don't think he had the spine to take on this fight against these aggressive, sometimes underhanded tactics used by these mega famous, mega expensive lawyers. And he just, to, to say it simply, he just wimped out and he didn't have the guts to take on a scary, intimidating guy with a group of scary, intimidating lawyers. Now, it's not until many years later when Acosta becomes a member of Trump's cabinet that people start going, "What? what how did this happen with Epstein? And uh, a great local reporter down there named Julie Brown sort of busted everything open. And then only then did the Southern District of New York, the feds, my former office, come in and indict Jeffrey Epstein. But they it's not even clear that indictment would have stuck because they would have had problems with how old the conduct was. They would have had problems with the deal they made with him then. Now, because he dies, they don't end up having to litigate these. But um, Epstein very nearly got away with it entirely the first time through. And he only really, I'm convinced, I argue in the book, only ever got any attention the second time through because Acosta drew so much attention. If Acosta had never been named Trump's secretary, um, nobody would have ever taken another look at this. Epstein would be oh, free today, I'm convinced. So when Acosta was accosted, he infamously said that it was above his pay grade and it was intelligence. You said you're not into conspiracies, but what does that imply? Above his pay grade, the decision to plead out Jeffrey Epstein? Yep. Epstein was intelligence. Is this a cursing podcast? Um, say whatever you want. I mean, that's bullshit. I mean, it's just, it's provably untrue. Acosta was the U.S. attorney for that federal district in Florida. He had the final say. There's no evidence that 
he went anywhere else. They did they did sort of the attorneys for Epstein made noises about going to DOJ, the main, you know, D, the headquarters of the Justice Department in D.C., which people do. But ultimately, it's Acosta's call. There's never been a shred of evidence it was anyone other than Acosta, nor did he ever register any protest of it. So, uh, no, I reject that. I, I, I don't buy his denial. Because some people have speculated that the numerous times Bill Clinton went on the Lolita Express meant that Epstein had some leverage over the Clintons. Yeah, I mean, this is this is a part of the story that nobody's ever really solved. But clearly, a lot of powerful people hung out with them. I mean, Donald Trump, Bill Clinton, you know, there's p- videos of, of Epstein partying with Trump. There's actually a quote I pulled from a profile done of Epstein years ago before he was ever in trouble with the law, where Trump, of course, many years before Trump was president, I think it was the early 2000s, I have the quote in my book, but Trump says something like, oh, he's a real party guy. He likes the girls even younger than I do or something like that. It's it's like looking back at it, it's astonishing. Bill Clinton was asked for a quote in the same piece and he gives a much more uh, measured quote. He says something like, oh, he's a philanthropist. You know, he's like very political in the way. But yeah, I mean, this guy was around all sorts of political people who've come up with like, you know, you know who Malcolm Gladwell is, right? The the author, right? Um, no, expand, please. What's that? Um, explain to people who that is. Malcolm Gladwell is a very, very successful author and pseudo intellectual who comes up. With, I, I think he's a, I think he's kind of a, I think he peddles some very, I think he's a BS artist. Look, I think he peddles these like glib theories that he supports with two anecdotes, but don't really stand up. He was uh, on that plane. He was on the plane with Epstein. And when he's been asked about it publicly, he has this ridiculous story about, Oh, uh, I don't really, I didn't even know what happened. We were just sort of hanging out at some event. Next thing I know, I'm on the plane. I didn't know what it was. Like, I mean, come on. So a lot of very influential people, Prince Andrew, uh, were around him. And I don't know that we've ever gotten to the bottom of the question about, about what he had on people, why he got away with so much for so long, why so many, why he was, how he got so rich, um, why very influential people were hanging around. There's a lot still unresolved about that that I don't know that we'll ever, ever resolve. Well, have you looked at the amount of money that Black gave him for financial advice? <laughs> Who? Was it was it Leon Black or Conrad Black? Oh, I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Leon Black, Epstein. Because people were asking, where did all this money come from? Yeah, I, I don't... We've never really gotten a satisfactory answer to that as far as I can well, tell. Well, well, Leon Black gave him $158 million for that's tax... A lot for, and, that's a tax, lot for consulting? For tax and estate advice? Yeah, I'm curious about that. Which seems extremely suspicious. Leon Black was worth $9 billion at the time. And um, it has mired him into the Epstein scandal by doing that. Wow. And then we've got um, Wexner giving him the property and also boosting Epstein's wealth. So it's, it's, it's clear that there were some billionaires who passed this money down to him for whatever nefarious reasons. Yeah. But the, what they're, they're officially saying just doesn't add up. Yeah, I can't. I, I, I'm not going to solve that. <laughs> Why do you think Prince Andrew got a pass? I I don't know. I mean, it would have been really difficult for the U.S. to charge. Well, look, all these people, nobody ever got charged with anything. I mean, there, there are questions of proof beyond a reasonable doubt. Did prosecutors have enough to charge a crime against any of these folks, right? I mean, a lot of people were accused by 
these now women, then girls of improper sexual conduct, um, including Dershowitz, um, although I, I believe that woman later recanted. Um, so, you know, I, I don't mean to make excuses for prosecutors. We just don't know what they had. And you have to have proof beyond a reasonable doubt. I do feel like Andrew was given a very soft touch throughout by the authorities on both sides of the ocean with respect to the civil cases, with respect to subpoenas. Um, I think he barely sort of slunk through this one. I think he, I think in part he got a pass because of who he is. I don't, I don't think there's any question about that. Well, his reputation has been destroyed in this country, but when they were trying to question him before he paid her off, um, did America have any legal recourse to extradite yeah. the Queen's son? Would that, is that just something yeah, that could I mean, possibly the, happen? The technical answer is yes. We have a treaty, a mutual assistance treaty, we call it, with England, with the UK. Um, which means if we indict someone here, they will generally agree to arrest the person and pending their own procedures, send them over here. I mean, we extradite people from UK, uh, all the time. I did, I believe Assange, Julian Assange. I don't remember where he was somewhere in Europe. Um, Assange is right by near me right now in Wandsworth prison. Okay. So, but you know, he was extradited. So you have people. Yes. The, the short answer is technically you, you can extradite and indict and extradite somebody in the UK. But as you say, there's a big diplomatic international problem with doing that uh, with somebody who's part of the royal family. I, I'm sure that was part of the hesitation. Yeah, because the justice system here is HM and the prison system here is HM, which means Her Majesty is the owner of it all. So if she owns the justice system and the legal system um, and they're trying to extradite her son through the British legal system, which she owns, it seems that she would have some kind of right to not allow that. Well, there was there was a battle over a subpoena, I remember. I don't remember how it came out, but I remember Andrew and maybe the British authorities were resisting him complying with a subpoena in a civil case, which ordinarily, again, should be enforceable. But I don't remember the details of that. So in your research of Epstein, then, did you research Maxwell? Yeah, sure. I mean, Jelaine Maxwell, I guess the big question with her was, well, first of all, it took them quite a while to indict Maxwell. It took her took them a year or more. Um, I, you know, it's it's curious to me that the only people ever charged in this case were Epstein and Maxwell. Um, they were clearly the one and the two, or the you know one and the one A. But you can't run a multi-state, multinational ring of child abuse with just two people. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the big question was, would Maxwell ever flip? And if she did, would she give them credible evidence? Now she did not flip and she's doing some mass, you know, she got convicted. She's doing decades. I forget the number, uh, you know, she'll probably never get out from prison, but there was speculation. I think I probably wrote a piece or two about, would she flip? Would I co would I take her as a cooperator? I said, I would, if she gave me substantial targets in a way that was reliable and corroborated, but as it stands, she did not cooperate. She went to trial. She got convicted and she's doing, I, I think it's, I, I have the number 30 something in my head, but it's many, many years behind bars. But couldn't she be Bill Cosby now once the publicity has died down? Because my well, theory was, yeah, give her, give her a big, whack her with a big sentence to satisfy the outrage, but then quid pro quo her out a bit of backsheesh to some appeals court judge. Maybe, but, but Cosby... The reason I'm going to say this is sort of controversial. I think I say this in the book. Bill Cosby, his conviction was reversed by the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. 
And they were right legally. Bill Cosby is absolutely guilty, but what prosecutors did to Cosby was actually patently in, in, inappropriate, incorrect, unfair. Now, uh, and I'll explain, let me explain that. First of all, part one, they gave, like, much like Epstein, the original prosecutors to look at this case gave Cosby a pass. It's unbelievable. When they were first investigating this case, they got a complainant in, this woman who worked at Temple, and they interview her, who's claiming, she's claiming she was sexually assaulted. She's claiming she was raped, basically. Not full intercourse, but she's claiming she was sexually assaulted. And they interview her on the phone. Okay, any cop knows you don't interview the victim of, any someone who's claiming sexual abuse on the phone. It's hard enough to build rapport, never mind on the phone. Then when it comes time to interview Cosby, these detectives travel from Pennsylvania into New York City, meet with him in his lawyer's office, and come out and they're gushing. The cop is gushing to the press, the detective. They're like, what happened? He go, he, the, the detective, I quote him in the book, he says something like, oh, Mr. Cosby came out. He was wearing his typical Cosby sweater, just like on TV. And I don't see any reason to doubt anything he said. I mean, they were so in the bag for him because, and you got to understand, I mean, you, you know, we're probably a similar age, but if you grew up in the eighties in the United States, Bill Cosby was the most famous, most popular. I mean, it, I can't, you know, for anyone nowadays, it, it, it would be like Tom Hanks, like that, like 100% approval rating. Everyone loved the guy. And for, and he, you know, now we think of Bill Cosby correctly as a serial rapist. Um, but anyway, new DA comes in and charges Cosby. The problem was, here's where the prosecutors screwed up. Two things. One, by giving him a pass the first time. Then the prosecutor, after they give him a pass on the criminal case, tells Cosby and puts it, sort of memorializes it, I'm not going to charge you. And the and the reason that the prosecutor said he did that was because there were civil suits against Cosby and he didn't want Cosby to be able to take the fifth in those depositions. So the, the thinking, I guess, from the prosecutor was, well, if I make public, I'm not charging him. He can't take the fifth. That'll force him to testify in these civil cases, okay? He does that. So the prosecutor says, we're not charging you. You don't have a Fifth Amendment right anymore. He testifies in these civil cases. He admits, I mean, it's unbelievable. If you look, I went through the transcripts. He, he's saying, yeah, I, I gave people roofies. I gave women drugs all throughout the 70s and the 80s. I did it for sex. Like, he just admits it all. Um, then, years later, a new prosecutor comes in and says, oh, I'm going to use all that testimony against you now. So they, like, lured him in based on a promise that he's entitled to rely on, got him to testify based on that promise, and then took it back. And the Supreme Court said, you can't do that. That's, that's not acceptable prosecutorial practice. So I, I blame prosecutors here. They blew it. They blew it in giving him a pass. They blew it in this ridiculous back and forth where they kept changing their mind and said they weren't going to use something against him and then did use it against him. They were asking for a reversal and they got a reversal. So that's how Cosby escaped his justice. He's still, he's out in the open. I mean, he's, you know, he's very old now, but he's alive and free. So you said they gave him a promise. Do you mean by that he had some kind of deal that was in paper written down yeah, in there, paper? It was, and... There was written on the record public assurances the prosecutor said, "We've decided." I, I forget what form it took, but yes, it, this wasn't like some behind-the-scenes deal that people varied on. It like the prosecutor signed a piece of paper or said publicly something along the lines of, "We've decided not to ch not to charge Bill Cosby criminally. Therefore, he he will have to testify in his civil depositions." And Cosby did. And again, when the prosecutors say, "You know, you, you say it's a bait and switch," right? They said, 
oh, we're not going to charge you. Go ahead and testify. You're free to testify. You can't incriminate yourself because we're not going to charge you. He testifies and then they go, oh, now we're going to charge you. And worse yet, when they did decide to charge him, they could have proceeded without using his testimony. They could have said, yeah, judge, you know, we, we agree. We acknowledge he was lured to give that testimony by our promise. We've taken the promise back, but we're not going to use his testimony against him. They would have been fine. They had victims, but they got greedy and they used his testimony against him. Like that's a, that's a ridiculous judgment call by the prosecutors. Why didn't his lawyer have him plead the fifth in the civil cases? Because he had been assured on the record that he wasn't going to be charged. Therefore, the argument was, and I think you're technically right, but the, the thought was at that point when he testified, he'd been told he's not being charged. So he has no possibility of being of incriminating himself. He's not being charged. That said, a smart lawyer would have said, you're still taking the fifth, Bill, because those are state level prosecutors. You could still be charged federally. I'm not letting you go. Like I would have, I, I cannot explain why the lawyers let him testify. And again, that testimony is like, it's not even a whole bunch of, I don't recall, or that didn't happen. I mean, he's just like, it's astonishing. He's just recounting how he would have sex with these women. They would, you know, he would give them drugs. I mean, it's it's really, he, he gives, he admits everything. Not everything, but he admits a lot. So if these crimes occurred in the 70s and 80s. There's a statute of was... limitations problem too, yeah. Some of them were too old. Some of them couldn't be used. Uh, the judge in the eventual trial lets in some of the older evidence, but not all of it. Right. Okay. So Harvey Weinstein. Oh boy. Uh, one of the, my favorite targets in the book is the former Manhattan DA, Cy Vance. Cy Vance, I have a chapter in the book based on very good reporting. And I forget if it's the Atlantic or the New Yorker, but someone did a great piece about how years before Trump became president, the DA in Manhattan had Donald Trump Jr. and Ivanka Trump basically dead to rights on a fraud case. They were lying to people. I mean, tell me if this sounds familiar. Lying to investors about real estate, that kind of thing. And he ultimately, Trump sends in his lawyers, Donald Trump, the future president, former, you know, at that time, future president, sends in his lawyers. And Cy Vance basically like decides, no, we're not charging it. Contrary to what some of the people on his team want to do. Fast forward to Harvey Weinstein. Uh, there were various complaints circulating about Harvey Weinstein. The NYPD is working with this one victim, a woman who's pub gone public. Her name is Ambra Gutierrez. And she says, basically, Harvey Weinstein sexually, you know, has, has been sexually groping and assaulting me. They have her wear a wire. They ask her, will you wear a recording device? And she does. And she gets this incriminating tape of Harvey Weinstein. We've heard it. It's been on the news. He, clear as day, he's apologizing. He's, for, he's acknowledging that he groped her previously. He says something like, I'm just used to doing that. I mean, he's toast. And Cy Vance makes the decision not to charge him, um, you know, for reasons that Cy Vance has never satisfactorily explained. Cy Vance only doubles back after the Me Too movement really starts gaining momentum and people start going, wait, hey, hang on a second. How did Cy Vance not charge this? Then Cy Vance becomes the brave hero years later, goes, actually, I think I will charge him now and does charge him eventually and he gets convicted. I should add, by the way, I forgot to mention, with the first story with the Trump children, the lawyer who goes in, who saves the day, is a lawyer who had donated tens of thousands of dollars to Cy Vance's campaign for DA. And then Cy Vance like, returns the money, and then he gets caught, and the media says, what the hell are you doing? And then he, he returns the money, and then he takes it back, and then he returns it again. I mean, Cy Vance is just like, multiple times Cy Vance gives very powerful people passes, influential people, at times donors, gets called out by the media, and then tries to like, 
circle back and fix it after the fact, only when he gets caught and called out. So I, I, I'm very critical of Cy Vance in the book. I think he's a, uh, he was a weak and unprincipled spineless prosecutor. So would you say that in America, you get what justice you can afford? Yeah, I think that's largely true. I mean, it's not true as a rule. I do, I do make a point in the book of saying, you know, there is a notion that people who get, who get, who can't afford lawyers who get public defenders, like they're screwed. I tell you in the book, from personal experience, public defenders in some, in many instances are excellent at what they do. Sometimes, often, I would see people originally get assigned a public defender, then scrape up all the money they could and go hire some tomato can private lawyer. You would have been they would have been better would have been better off with the public defender. Um, and again, the, the converse of that is not every mega expensive lawyer is a super effective lawyer. I mean, Alan Dershowitz probably costs an arm and a leg. I think he's atrocious. I mean, in the, in recent years, he has, a, you know, he has an interesting history, but if you look at his advocacy that he, that he gave on behalf of Donald Trump, it's ridiculous. Um, so, but yes, I mean, all things being equal, you want more money. Here's something I write about in the book though, that like People, I think everyone understands the idea of paying for fancy lawyers. What One tactic that I call out in the book that ended up being proven over and over again is what I would see in my mob cases is very powerful gangsters would often pay for other people's lawyers, for the people who get arrested with them, in order to keep them quiet. I saw it all the time. I have stories in the book about we would do an arrest of 22 people. You would know exactly who the 22 lawyers would be. It would be all the guys on the Genovese you know, list of approved lawyers, all the guys on the Gambino list of approved lawyers. Well, Donald Trump is really good at that. We see that now. There's people in the Mar-a-Lago case, he's paying for the lawyers of his co-defendants. He was paying for the lawyer for Cassidy Hutchinson for a long time, which made it really difficult for her. She said publicly, and I, I've spoken with her, it made it really difficult for her to come clean because she was like, well, the Trump people are paying for him. I can't tell them everything. I can't tell these investigators everything i know because he's gonna i'm gonna get in trouble and i'm gonna lose this lawyer i'm gonna have to pay for my own lawyer which costs six figures only when cassidy hutchinson found herself separate lawyers was she able did she feel confident enough to come fully clean and tell the full story and that was a huge moment in this whole investigation when cassidy hutchinson testified in front of congress i think that changed everything and she was only able to do that when she got free of trump's lawyer so i tell a story in the book about one guy in a mob case who was a semi-low player but we were always hoping to flip guys and we had one guy in the indictment who was represented by a mob lawyer but he sent his girlfriend on like a secret mission to find the fbi agent and say hey he wants to talk to you guys but he can't with that lawyer and so i tell the story of like all the cloak and dagger maneuvers we had to go through i had to get him a secret lawyer appointed by the judge and the secret lawyer met in secret with him and then came back to us and was like he does want to flip and we had to like pull him out of jail um immediately and like you know it, it, it took the point is it took an incredible amount of work and ingenuity to get this guy who wanted to flip to, to break him free of the grasp of the other lawyers who had been placed around him but isn't there a moral dilemma in mob cases if you're enthusiastic to get them to flip that that could potentially be a death sentence for them or their family members um yeah i mean yes in that it's not a moral dilemma it's a reality i think that we advise them of, we have we have a program here, WITSEC, we call it, I guess, uh, on, on the TV, they call it the Witness Protection Program, but it's called WITSEC, um, who's very good. They will pull people out, they will relocate people, they will get people new identities. I've dealt with many, many uh, mob guys in WITSEC. The funny thing is when you're in WITSEC, so they'll send the mob guy out to the middle, you know, middle of nowhere. And if you, if you need to meet with them, 
it, we would call it a neutral site because they don't come to me in New York. I don't go to them wherever they live. I'm not actually supposed to know where they live, although they'd always kind of tell me. Um, they would send you to a third location and it would always be some small town in, I won't even say the States, but you know, small towns, nondescript locations. So you end up spending like days in like a residence in with someone like John A. Light, with a guy who's a confessed murderer, or former gangster. And you end up bonding with these guys. I did because, you know, it's, you're human. Uh, you know, how did you see the Yankees game? How are your kids? Whatever. And the rule was we weren't ever supposed to really leave. You'd have U.S. Marshals and FBI agents with you. The rule was like you weren't ever supposed to leave the hotel room. They would bring in food and stuff. And, but, you know, by day two, we were like, we're going to dinner. And you just end up like at a Applebee's. I don't know if you know what this is, but, you know, like at Applebee's or a TGI Fridays or something in you know, pick your town in Nebraska or something with some gangster and he's trying to order the mozzarella sticks. And it's like, God, what kind of life am I living here? Um, so anyway, that's a long winded answer. I don't even remember your, Oh, the, the flipping thing. Um, I mean, th they're very good at protecting these folks. It's actually very, very rare now that someone who is flipped and in the government's hands gets, gets murdered. It's been many years since that's happened. Witsack likes to brag that they have a 0%, a 100% safety rate. We had the head of WITSEC came to our office once and he said, you know, we have a 100% safety rate. No one in WITSEC has ever been murdered. And I went to him after I didn't want to show him up in front of the group. But I said, you know, you also have a 0% retention rate because these guys, the restrictions are so tight that they drop out of WITSEC after a few years. They, they, it's, they're not allowed to call anyone from home. Like they all just end up getting kicked out or quitting. Um, I think a light got kicked out if I remember right. Um, or quit or something like that. But um, yeah, they're very they're very good at that. I mean, the the number of mob murders in the United States is like almost zero now. The the most recent agreed upon mob murder that I know of happened in two thousand eight. I prosecuted it. Um, it's been over a decade since there's been an acknowledged the mob killed this guy for mob related reasons. They used to they used to kill each other and and other people all the time throughout the eighties nineties. There was wars between the families, but that is really cooled off. So you're saying that none of your witnesses got whacked? Correct. Thankfully, I was always very afraid of that. I had a, uh, I have a podcast uh, up against the mob where I did a long, inter an hour long interview with one of my former cooperators, a guy named Michael Visconti, youngish guy, 50, 52, 54, something like that. And a year or so ago, I got a call or a text or something that he had died. And I went, oh, no, I was worried because he's out in the world. I was like, oh, God, please tell me they didn't kill him. Because when the podcast came out, I mean, a lot of people heard it. And Michael called me and said, man, I, I warned him. I said, Michael, only do this if you're comfortable because I know you're living openly. And uh, a lot of people are going to hear it. And he goes, man, I didn't realize how many people are going to hear it. He goes, I'm all right. He wasn't killed, though. He died of natural causes. But um, yeah, thank thankfully, that's sort of a that used to keep me up at nights worrying about that, but it never happened. So talking about people that bring a lot of attention to themselves in the witness protection scheme, that brought to mind Sammy the Bull. Did you have any dealings with him? Barely. So Sa Sammy was a, a legendary cooperator who then got himself in more trouble after you know after he cooperate cooperates against John Gotti gets you know gets John Gotti convicted of murder. John Gotti dies in jail. Gotti Senior. Gervana then like gets a five-year sentence for doing 19 murders, gets out on the deal of a lifetime, and starts dealing ecstasy in like Arizona and gets thrown back in. I talked to Sammy on the phone once or twice. I never met him in person, but I was doing some trial where there was some question about like, could might we want to call Sammy Gravano as a witness? It was must have been a Gambino case. And I remember 
in being in the trial room and getting put through to him on the phone through whatever FBI connections. And I talked to him for eight minutes and I was like, no way. This guy's nuts. I'm not putting this guy on the stand. <laughs> now, you talked about how the mob hits had slowed down. But isn't that because other criminal enterprises have replaced them, such as the Mexican cartels? Yeah. I mean, their business model, they're like any other operation. They're, they're a business model. I mean, I'll give you an example. When I was prosecuting them, one of their biggest moneymakers was sports gambling. They made millions off that. Now it's all legal. Now anyone can go on their phone in the United States and bet on tonight's game. So they've like lost a huge amount of that business. They've been pushed out of certain industries, but not altogether. They're still prevalent in some of the construction industry, the union rackets, strip clubs um, were a big, always a big thing for them. I did a case involving an extortion of a strip club. Um, but, you know, it's I think they realize at some point it's just bad business to kill people because that's what brings us. That's what brings the FBI. That's what brings heat. That's what gives life to murder charges. That's what causes people to flip. Gangsters usually aren't going to flip on an extortion charge. They'll do their three years, their five years. But when you start charging people with murder, that's how that's the, the way I mostly was able to flip people. And yes, there's always different groups. I mean, I'll give you one example. The Albanians, um, Albanian gangsters started really clashing with the Italian mob in New York City. Um, the Albanians are a generation or two behind, you know, in terms of when they came to the country. But I did a case where the Genovese family was doing home invasion. They were robbing homes of people who they knew kept cash or drugs or jewelry or whatever. But they didn't want to do it themselves because it was too risky. So they would basically subcontract these robberies to Albanians. And so I flipped one of, we flipped one of these Albanians. I guess I won't say his name because uh, he's out there in the world. I think I don't know where he is now, but he flipped and he was like, yeah, they, they come to us to do the dirty work because we're much tougher. We're crazy. We're willing to do stuff they're not willing to do anymore. But sometimes that would end up in turf battles, too. And of course, they would rob from each other. And yeah, but you're right. You know, the the the, the hold over the criminal enterprise is never forever. There's always newer, evolving, hungrier groups out there, just like any other industry. Right. So with the Mexican cartels, then, there's so, it seems there's so much money at stake. There's an economic incentive whereby the most violent will maximize their profits and dominate the market. Do you think you know, that's, a, that's caused you know, chaos over there you know, in Mexico? I'm not, an, I'm not an expert in the cartels at all. They never came into play in my – I did narcotics cases early on, but le, not cartel level cases. But I will say this, one of the mob's rules, and I'm using scare quotes here, is that we don't we don't deal in drugs. This goes back to the beginning of the mob because A, they felt like they were sort of gentlemen gangsters who didn't dabble in that kind of thing. Um, and B, they realized that the penalties were really severe for, for drug trafficking smartly. The, the problem is virtually everyone does it. And I did so many cases where we, you know, some of them were just outright heroin traffickers. Others were sort of in partnerships with marijuana dealers, smaller level things. But I would charge guys, we had a case where we charged guys with a bunch of Gambinos with, I don't know, 15, 12, 15 different crimes, including like they were sort of working with local marijuana dealers, small time drug trafficking. We wouldn't have charged it unless it was tied to other crimes, which this was. And they, the guys, when it came time to the plea, they were all willing to plead to the bigger stuff, but not the little tiny marijuana trafficking because they didn't want to admit they were breaking the rules. So the mob has, I think, by necessity, there's too much money in, in, in drug trafficking. They've, they've long done it, and, and I'm sure they're still doing it today. I'm sure not anywhere near the scope of the cartels. Wasn't that one of the things that John Gotti motivated him because his um, associates were involved in drugs and they thought there could be a problem from up top? 
you know, as as I remember it, John Gotti Sr., the father, who was more much, you know, much more powerful and feared, was actually, I believe, uh, was actually like enforced that. Like he kind of knew some of his people were dealing, but he was pretty against it. John Gotti Jr., part of our case was that he was very much in the drug trade and knew what was happening. It was, you know, taking money from these guys and all that. So, um, but, you know, you go back in time, there, there were, one of my cooperators said that the mafia was founded on heroin trafficking. You know, I don't know about founded, but made its original bones on on heroin trafficking in the United States. Yeah, lucky Luciano and all that. So, what about pedophile priests? Anything like that? That's I, that's not in the book. I mean, uh, you know, I, I don't really have any particular expertise into that. Any other celeb names in the book? Sure. I mean, uh, Cosby, Epstein. Uh, gosh. I'm trying to think who else. Epstein, Cosby, Weinstein, a lot about Trump in there. Um, there's a good bit of history in there. I think it's interesting if you dig back through American history and look at what happened with Richard Nixon, what happened with Bill Clinton, what happened with Spiro Agnew, who was Nixon's VP for a while. And I sort of dug into the history a bit there. And, you know, all of them were potentially in the crosshairs of an indictment. Nixon obviously got pardoned. Agnew worked out a deal with prosecutors where he would resign and he would plead no contest to charges. Bill Clinton actually, you know, he was famously impeached and then found not guilty, but the but the prosecutors still had to decide, are we going to charge this guy criminally when he gets out of office? And they too worked out a deal with him where he gave up his law license and paid a fine and wrote a statement acknowledging he had lied under oath. But I basically dig into the history of this and the DOJ policy of what do we do when we have a sitting president or vice president who might have engaged in criminality is something we're still wrestling with. We were wrestling with during Donald Trump's time in office. We may be wrestling with again if he wins and goes back into office. Uh, so there, there's a lot of interesting history. This is not, it's not a new problem, but it's definitely new in terms of its scope. We've never had a president looking at the level of seriousness of charges that Donald Trump is looking at right now. Not even close. Did you look at the arrest of Bill Clinton's half-brother Roger for drugs? Well, <laughs> Uh, Bill, I mean, I talk about pardons in the book and, and I, what you're probably alluding to is Bill Clinton on his last day in office famously pardoned his half-brother, um, Roger Clinton, who had been convicted on cocaine charges, and a guy named Mark Rich, who was a billionaire financier who was a fugitive on tax charges. And that pardon was so egregious that the Southern District of New York, again, my former office, opened up a criminal investigation because they were trying to figure out, was this was this pardon the result of a bribe or something? I mean, no charges came of it. But, you know, people people remember the Trump pardons because they were recent and he pardoned all his cronies and all these, you know, Steve Bannons and Paul Manafort's. But he did not, Donald Trump did not invent the shady pardon. I mean, there's the Clinton pardon of his brother. Um, there was, um, I guess it would have been, I believe it was George Bush, the father, pardoned a bunch of people who were either had been indicted or were the subjects of investigation in the Iran-Contra case. And that case, one of the cases was about to go to trial when Bush issued the pardon, sparing perhaps himself, perhaps Reagan from being exposed. So presidents have, uh, there's a long, interesting history of shady pardons. Somebody else pardoned, oh, I was going to say the other family member is Donald Trump pardoned Charles Kushner, who was Jared Kushner's, right? So Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka, is married to Jared Kushner, whose father, Charles Kushner, was convicted here in New Jersey, where I live. Do you know what Do you know what Charles Kushner did to get himself convicted? It's wild. No. Charles Kushner is a, was a, a 
maybe a billionaire, but a very, very wealthy real estate developer here. That's why Jared grew up rich. Um, Charles Kushner was being investigated and he learned that, I think I'm going to get this right, his sister's husband was cooperating against him. So Charles Kushner hires a prostitute who seduces the sister's husband, has sex with him in a hotel or motel, videotapes it, and then sends it to them to blackmail them out of testifying. Uh, so that was a, a wild case, but he ended up pleading guilty. To, I think he pled guilty to a bunch of tax offenses, maybe obstruction, but that's what he did. And Trump par pardoned him. I mean, he was already finished his jail sentence, but, or his prison sentence, but Trump pardoned him on the way out as well. So yeah, we, we have, is there a pardon power in the UK? Does that exist? Is there some equivalent of that? I've never heard of it. You can like the prime minister or can the queen pardon? I don't know. That's probably a stupid question. I've never heard of it. No, hmm. not, not over here. I mean, the pardon is not inherently evil. You know, people people recoil a lot of times because of the history I talked to you about. But I mean, there have been a lot of unjust convictions pardoned, a lot of people who were overcharged, oversentenced, people who were wrongly convicted. So it's not inherently evil. In fact, Donald, interestingly, Donald Trump used, I, I went back and found the, the stats on this. Donald Trump used the pardon way less, fewer times than any of his predecessors going back, I think, to the Bushes, to the maybe the first Bush. Um, but way less than Barack Obama, way less than Bill Clinton, way less than George W. Bush, I believe. Um, but he also, Trump also used a vastly disproportionate number to save his cronies, to bail out his friends, potentially people who could have testified against him, Manafort, Michael Flynn, Roger Stone, on down the line. So Trump really took it to a new self-serving level, self-protective level. So did Roger Stone, did he end up doing any prison time? No. Trump, he was sentenced to some, some I, believe, I have seven years in my head, but he was sentenced to several years in federal prison. And right before he had to surrender, Trump commuted his sentence, meaning not a full pardon, but just said, you don't have to serve your sentence. And then on the way out, Trump fully pardoned Roger Stone. So no, he's never, he's never spent a day behind bars. Well, this has been absolutely fascinating. I thank you for your time. And do you want to tell yeah. the viewers where they can find your book and support you online? Uh, I'm the only Ellie Honig. You know, you don't have to worry about like, uh, you know, John Smith 4 or anything. So I'm on Twitter. I'm on Instagram. My books are on Amazon, both books. If you just search under Ellie Honig, I'm on CNN most every day. Uh, so you can see me there. And um, I have a podcast. I have two podcasts, Up Against the Mob and Third Degree. Third Degree is every week on Fridays. It's 10 minutes or less. And up against the mob, if you're into this stuff, is I guarantee you'll you'll enjoy that. Oh well, cheers again, Ellie. You take care and Thank thanks you. for your time. Thanks. Good talking to you.